You know, just as a quick word, one of the things that I love about us doing Advent is that we aren't the only ones doing Advent. I know that for a lot of you that Advent may be new, but that's been going on in the church for centuries. And even on this Sunday, some in Africa, some in Asia, some in South America, some in Europe, some here in the United States of America, some in Australia, Christians all around the globe are gathered today to celebrate Advent. And we are standing arm in arm with them to celebrate the incarnation of the Christ, the coming of the Son. And as a, a, a tiny picture of that, you all know that we have a good-sized team of our people in Lots Creek, Kentucky uh, this morning. They're worshiping in Lots Creek. They're ministering to the people of Lots Creek. And you know what we decided to do with Lots Creek this year? We are doing Advent together. They are doing the same readings. They are preaching the same text. Josh uh, and I, Pastor Josh and I, are, are communicating throughout the week on sermon preparation. So we are very closely knit with our sister church up there in Lots Creek. And this is just a beautiful picture to me of the, of the house of God and of the people of God. Today among the church, I find that there are many passions. There are passions for making sure that there are, are children and teenagers and families there. There is a passion to meet the humanitarian needs of the day, a passion to drill wells in Africa and to bring food to Asia, to take Bibles into the midst of the Middle East. There is a passion among the people of God to feed hungry people and to grow the footprint of the church within the society into all of those things and many more I say amen. But among the passions of the church today, I find one lacking. That out of all of the good things that may be happening, out of all the things that we may see, one of the things that we do not see, one of the things which we are not passionate about is we are not passionate about personal holiness. Among the church today, there are, are many more sins that are normalized and comfortable to us. Many more sins that are justifiable and excused in our lives than there are hated and mortified. Among the church today, there's, there is much more apathy and indifference to the way that you live your life and the way that I live my life than there is to meeting needs than there are around us. But what if I told you, what if I told you that at the very center of Jesus' advent, at the very center of Jesus' coming was your personal holiness. That Jesus did not just come so that you might be forgiven. Jesus came so that you might be empowered and enabled to live a life that is holy. Set apart from this world. Consecrated from what you see. If you have your Bibles, I want you to turn with me to a book that was written some 600 years, almost 600 years before the time of Christ. The book of Ezekiel in the Old Testament. Ezekiel, so if you turn to the middle of your Bible, and you go, you'll see Psalms and Proverbs, and uh, you'll have the wisdom literature, Song of Songs, Ecclesiastes. You're going to come to the major prophets. You're going to have Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel. All right, so that's probably not one that you read a whole lot. Ezekiel is a big book. It's a dense book. It's the fourth largest book in all of the Bible. So find it there and then turn with me to Ezekiel chapter 36. Ezekiel chapter 
36. Ezekiel 36 is one of the most significant passages in all of the Old Testament in terms of the new covenant that is coming. Jeremiah and Ezekiel are contemporaries. Jeremiah being a little bit older, we know what he says in Jeremiah 31, that there is going to be a new covenant, that the word of God, the law of God is going to be written on the heart of man. And so I think what we have in Ezekiel 36 is Ezekiel picking up that theme of the new covenant from Jeremiah and taking it yet a step further. So we're going to be in Ezekiel 36. We're going to start in verse 22. Would you stand with me as we read God's word together? Ezekiel 36, beginning in verse 22, and we will read through verse 32. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove, from, remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers. And you shall be my people and I will be your God. And I will deliver you from all your uncleannesses. And I will summon the grain and make it abundant and lay no famine upon you. I will make the fruit of the tree and the increase of the field abundant, that you may never again suffer the disgrace of famine among the nations. Then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good, and you will loathe yourselves for your iniquities and your abominations. It is for your sake, it is not for your sake that I will act, declares the Lord. Let that be known to you. Be ashamed and confounded for your ways, O house of Israel. May God bless the reading and the preaching of his inerrant word this morning. You may be seated. So when we come to Ezekiel 36, God tells us that his name has been profaned. That the holiness and the glory of his name has now taken a hit before the eyes of the nations. You see, for for generations, God had told his people that judgment was coming. That if they did not repent of their sin, if they did not turn from their wickedness, if they they did not revive their passion for the Lord and their passion for the law of the Lord, that judgment was going to come. But Israel could not resist the allure of the pagan nations. That they constantly felt themselves being drawn to the nations of pagan gods and to the prosperity that they saw and to the things that were there and interested, interested them. And so when we come to Ezekiel 36, the judgment has finally come. They have been captured. Israel and Judah are now members of the empire of Babylon. And the pagan nations to which they were so drawn, they have now been scattered among them. God, in essence, giving them what they had always wanted. 
God, in essence, letting them have what their hearts had always been drawn to, always longed for. Now, if they wanted the pagan gods so much, if they wanted the pagan gods' provision, and they wanted the pagan gods' protection, and they wanted the pagan gods' prosperity, well, go and have it. You are now scattered. And so we see Israel as a sovereign nation, totally and utterly dissolved. And so on one hand, we see God fulfilling a promise that he has made. God fulfilling the promise that he would bring judgment on his people, but we see a problem. The problem is, is that in fulfilling that promise, it appears that all of the other promises God made are now in question. How could the the throne of David endure into perpetuity? How is it that that the nation of Israel that God said would be his people and he would be their God and, and in that covenant relationship they would then be a blessing to all nations? How can that be if the nation has been dissolved utterly and totally? And so we see here that the nation of Israel has profaned God not merely in their lack of holiness, not merely in their wickedness and unfaithfulness and disobedience, but the nation of Israel is profaning the name of God because them being scattered in judgment calls into question the victory and power and strength and might of their God. As Israel has been conquered, it appears that their God has been conquered. And so before the eyes of Babylon, before the eyes of Egypt, before the eyes of all the mighty empires of the day, it appears that that the God of Israel is no more than a fly-by-night witch doctor that could do cool things at the Red Sea but had no power over their militaries. And so his name is shamed. The holiness and the might and the splendor of the name of the Lord God has been profaned in their eyes. So what does God say? He says, I will vindicate my name. I will vindicate my name. And I will vindicate my name for my own sake. Now that's a bit jarring for us, I think. We are so accustomed to a narcissistic version of Christianity here in America that to hear God say that I'm going to do this not for you, I'm going to do it for me. I'm going to do this for my name. I'm going to do this for my glory. I'm going to do this for my renown. It sets us back a second. Twice, once in verse 22, again in verse 32, God makes a point to make this crystal clear to the people of God, to crystal clear to the people of Judah. I'm not doing this for your sake. This isn't just about grace and mercy. This is about the renown of my name. And I think sometimes when we read these passages for us, it it causes us just to wonder if God is actually good. We hear these things and we begin to think, am I here singing songs and raising hands and reading the words of a narcissistic God? Am I here reading the words of some arrogant God in the the heavens that is just wanting to crush me like an ant beneath a foot? But what I want us to understand is that for God to have anything else as the center of his glory, to have God have anything else other than himself as the center of his focus would be idolatry, and God is no idolater. God is not narcissistic. And if you believe that God is narcissistic, ask yourself the questions, before whom should he bow? 
To whom should he seek counsel? To whom, before whom should he be humbled? To whom should the Lord God defer? If arrogance is believing that in some way that you're as good as God or as strong as God or as smart as God, then who should God compare himself to and be embarrassed? To who should God compare himself and be humbled? God is the standard. And for God to have any other focus in his life would not be arrogance, would not be idolatry. It instead would be the complete reprimand of who God is himself. Now God is not narcissistic, brothers and sisters. We are. We are the ones that want God to be a grandpa in the sky, sitting in his rocking chair, on the edge of his rocking chair with a white beard, hoping that his grandchildren want to talk to him today. Hoping that that we have some question we can ask him to get some gift from grandpa God today. But at the center of God's focus, at the center of God's desire, at the center of God's passion is not you and me it is himself it is his own glory it is his own renown his own holiness a man by the name of A.W. Tozer once said that that what comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you so I ask you this morning what do you think about God what comes into your mind when you think about God Do you think about God as being the grandpa in the sky on the edge of his rocking chair, just hoping that you'll talk to him that day, just hoping that you'll have time to to pull in his driveway and spend a few minutes with him? Do you think about God as being some benevolent humanitarian up in the sky, making sure that we have water and food, but indifferent to how we live? When you think about God, do you think about the one who is utter and total in his holiness, his purity? Do you think about the one who is the creator, the Lord, the owner of all, the one to whom our, our lives are owed, our surrender is deserved, the one to whom has the warrants the raising of our hands and the proclamation of our voices, the surrender of our lives? Worship God as he is, church. Not as you wish him to be. Worship God as the Bible describes him. Not as you imagine him. Because gods created by human ingenuity and human imagination are gods that are incapable of delivering you from your sin. Delivering you from your death. The God of the Bible, the God of all glory, the God of all holiness, the God of all might is the only God capable of delivering you from the ashes. Worship him, brothers and sisters. Worship him. And so he says that he's going to do this, and he's going to do this his way. Twelve times in ten verses, God says, I will. I will. I will vindicate my name. I will cause you to be holy. I will make the, clean, the unclean clean. I will come and gather you in. I am going to do this. That by the decisive action of God himself, 
according to the will of God. God is going to make his name glorified in the eyes of the nations once again. And so at the center of this, again, we see this is about God. This is about his name. This is about his holiness. This is, this is not about grace as the center. This is not about mercy as the center. This is not about our salvation as the center. At the center is the name and glory of God before the nations. But, but, though grace and mercy aren't at the center, they are the byproducts. This is how good God is. This shows us how good God is in his own essence. That God, as he pursues the glory of his own name, God, as he pursues the the proclamation of his own holiness, that what he does is he decides that he is going to demonstrate that by the rescue and the deliverance and the salvation of his people. That this is what sovereign grace is about. That as God pursues his own glory, we are graciously and mercifully gathered together as his people in his name to proclaim his goodness and to demonstrate how mighty he is by performing the greatest work that has ever been performed, the transformation of a sinner into a righteous man or woman. So we see sovereign grace as the byproduct of God's holiness. The result, the effect, the consequence of God pursuing his own holiness. Maybe the most remarkable words in all of this passage are the words, through you. Verse 23, read verse 23 with me. This is at the second part. He says, and the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God. How? When through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. Now think about this for a second. Think about this for just a second. It was through Israel that God's name had been profaned. It was through Israel that now they are being scattered among the pagan nations, calling into question the holiness of God. It was through Israel that this whole situation became, uh, came about to begin with. And yet, how is it that God is going to resolve it? How is it that God is going to make his holiness known? Through Israel. Through Israel. That God does not discard Israel because Israel discarded God. God does not let go of his end of the covenant with Israel because Israel has let go of their end of the covenant. No, God says, I am going to work through my people in spite of my people to bring glory to my name among the nations. And brothers and sisters, this is what he does with the church. This is who we are as the people of God. The people of God have never done much to help the reputation of God. The people of God are not good PR for God. But what God has resolved to do by his own glory and according to his own providence is God works through his church, in spite of his church, to the glory of his name among the nations. You are not a good ambassador for God. You're wicked in nature. You're wicked in motive. In your life, day in and day out, you are aware of how far short you come. There are many more shortcomings in your life than there are evidences of holiness. You are not a good ambassador for the name of God, but you are exactly the one. You are exactly the type of person that God uses to spread his name and to spread his renown to the ends of the earth. 
There has never been, outside of Christ and Christ alone, a worthy ambassador for the glory and name of God. But yet, God's name is glorified. Yet, God's renown is spread. And it is spread to all nations. How? Through his people, in spite of his people, according to his own grace, mercy, and strength. And we see the ceilings of this right here in Ezekiel 36. See, God's making promises here. God is promising that his promises to Israel will not fail. God is making the promise that he is going to keep his promises. How is he going to deliver his people? How is he going to to spread his renown? How is he going to, to make his name holy and declared among the nations once again? How is he going to do that? He is going to do it by keeping every single word he has ever spoken to his people. He's going to do it by making sure that his people are a blessing to all nations, just as he promised Abraham. He's going to do it by keeping his word to David and making sure that the throne of David does endure forever. He's going to do it by making sure that all tribes and all nations and all tongues are going to gather in his sight and declare that he is the Lord God. God is going to accomplish all of this by keeping his promises to Israel. So how does he do that? The baby comes. The baby comes. The baby is to be born of a virgin. The baby is going to be born in Bethlehem. The born as the new king in the line of David to go out to bring, raise up disciples of every nation, of every tribe, of every tongue. That they might then go out as the ambassadors of Christ with the glory of Christ to raise up new disciples wherever they go. So that they might proclaim the name of the Lord. Our God is a promise-making, but better than that, a promise-keeping God. And the advent of Christ Jesus is the case, point, and lesson all in one. So we see here in our text that the way God is going to do this, the way that God is going to work through this baby that he's going to send, the way that he is going to raise up his people to to reclaim his renown around the world, to, to, to bring purity and holiness and reverence back to his name among the nations, the way he's going to do this is he's going to do it by changing his people. By changing them into something that they are not. By making them into something new. And he's going to do this with a twofold action. He's going to do this with a twofold action. First, look in verse 25 with me. Verse 25 says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. And so first, how is he going to change his people? How is he going to make his his name clean and holy once again? He's going to wash them. He's going to wash them. If you think of John chapter 3. You remember John chapter 3, that's the chapter in which Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, right? He's talking to Nicodemus, and Nicodemus comes to God, and he's like, like it comes to Jesus, and says, obviously you've got something figured out that we don't know. You have an authority when you speak that we've never had. I'm a religious leader, I'm a religious expert, and yet I don't have what you have, Jesus. How can I have what you have? And one of the things that Jesus says to him is he says, unless a man is born of water and of spirit, they cannot inherit the kingdom of God. It's John 3, 
verse 5. Unless a man is born of both water and spirit, they cannot inherit the kingdom of God. And what is Jesus doing? He's pointing us to Ezekiel 36. The water here is is the, the water that they would use to purify themselves of all their uncleanliness before they entered into worship uh, as the people of God. You know, they had all the ceremonial ceremonial laws, and so they would become ceremonial uncle- ceremonially unclean. Maybe they touched something that was dead, or maybe they had uh, touched someone that was sick, or they, had, they were sick themselves, whatever it was. And they would wash themselves so that they would be clean, that they would be ceremonially clean and able to then offer a sacrifice to the Lord. And so what God is saying is that you must be washed with a water that is permanent. You must be cleansed permanently of all of your wickedness. You must be cleansed permanently of all of your uncleanliness. You must be washed clean. And this is why the baby is sent. This is what Jesus is telling in John 3. I came so that you might be washed clean. Not with mere water, but with blood. With the blood that I will shed on the cross. I have come that your sins might go away. That the penalty of your sin might go away. That you might be wiped clean as you stand before God. This goes back to the justification that we talked about last week, right? That on one sense, your life has been wiped clean. And on the other sense, your life has been credited with Christ's righteousness. That you have been disrobed of your, fel- of your filth and instead clothed in the cloak of Jesus' sparkling righteousness. That's what it's talking about in verse 25. Do you know what it says? If you, if you really pay attention, it says all uncleannesses. All idols. I'm going to wash you clean of all of it. Now, first of all, that means you've got a lot of them, right? It means you're not just standing before God with one lie, one little white lie that you sheepishly told your mom one time. You're not just standing before God as as somebody that's, that's mostly good, just a little bit bad. No, you are standing before God in all of your filth. In all of your idols, that in your heart is a multiplicity of sins. The great church reformer John Calvin is famous for saying that the human heart is an idol factory. And that in fact is who you are and what you are. That in your heart, over and over, you find things that you love more than God. You find things that you prioritize in your life more than God. It can be your job, it can be your money, it can be your boyfriend, it can be your wife, it can be your kids, it can be good things. But whatever they are, they find their place on the throne of your heart, taking the place of God himself. And as a result, they become an idol. What does he say? I'm going to wash them all. No matter how filthy, no matter how despicable. No matter how reprehensible, no matter how pervasive, all of the idols, all of the uncleannesses, all of the sin, all of the wickedness, all of the unrighteousness, I am going to wash it all. You know, I wonder here this morning, who is just beaten down with guilt? You've come in and you're so riddled with guilt over sin in your life that you can't worship and you can't sing and you have no joy, you have no, no satisfaction in your walk with Christ. 
You've offered to him the normal sins, right? Whatever that is. You've offered to him those sins in repentance that maybe you're not embarrassed to bring to his attention. You've offered to him a little lie that you told you. You've offered to him that, that you don't read your Bible like you ought to. But then there are some secret sins. There are some especially flagrant sins in your life. And then those you're holding on to. Because you can't bring those to the attention of God, right? There are, are sins in your life that are marring your life and marking your life and causing you to be robbed of all joy, of all freedom that Christ has offered you. And so you live just riddled with guilt. I wonder who in here has a sin like that. I wonder who in here is carrying a weight like that. Because what God says, he says, when I come... Through the baby that is to be born, the water, the blood that is to cover you, it can cover them all. You're all of them. No matter how reprehensible, no matter how embarrassing, no matter how shameful, I can cover them all. So bring them to him, church. Bring them to him. Do you believe that Jesus' blood is sufficient or not? Do you believe that Jesus' salvation is sufficient or not? Do you believe that Jesus' forgiveness is offered or not? Bring all of your shameful sins to the throne and the cross of Christ. Bring them to the baby that was born and be washed clean of them all. Justified in the sight of God Almighty. So the first side of this action that we see is we see that we are washed clean. That Jesus was sent by God that we might be washed clean. That we might be washed of all of our wickedness. But secondly, what we see is that Jesus was sent. That God's action, the promise that he was making, was that he was going to make us obedient. Make us obedient. I say it that way very purposefully because that's what the Bible says. Read with me in verses 26 and 27. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. Your Bible may say make you. And cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. That God is going to transform you by washing you clean, but that's not all. God is not only going to wash you clean, God is going to make you new. He is going to make you walk in obedience to Him. Make you walk in faithfulness to Him. Make you live in an unbreakable relationship with Him. He's going to cause it. You see, what was the problem with the Old Covenant? The fundamental problem with the Old Covenant was that the people were incapable of keeping it. They could not live up to the law. They could not observe the law perfectly enough. They could not even live out those little ten rules that we have right in the middle. They blew them every single day. The problem with the people of God was not merely that they were unfaithful. It was that they were incapable of being faithful. Their hearts were sinners, were filled with sin. A passion for sin, a love for sin, a nature that was drawn to sin. And so the baby comes, right? So the baby comes to inaugurate for us a new covenant, a greater covenant. 
The problem is, is that we are born with hearts of stone. Hearts, the Bible says, are like rocks. Dull to the things of God. Indifferent about God. Bored with God. Tired of hearing about God. Having no time or place for God. And left on our own, they will not change. We are born with these stony hearts that just hear the word of God and it bounces off. And some of you are here every week and that's your experience. You're here and you're bored and you're tired and you're over it. And the words of God are just bouncing off. The baby came so that you could have hope. So that the heart could be taken out of your chest that is filled with stone and placed into your chest made of flesh. That is the heart that is soft and malleable. That can be transformed in the hands of God. That hears the words and it takes root and grows and transforms them. That Jesus was sent so that you could become someone new, a new creation, a new person entirely. See, one of the reasons that Jesus came was so that he could send the Spirit. So that he could send the Spirit. And what does the Holy Spirit do? What does he accomplish? Think about the song that we sang earlier. The Holy Spirit comes into our lives, and where there is a dead heart, he brings it to life. Where there is indifference to God, he incites passion. Where there is boredom with God, he brings wonder and awe. He awakens the heart within us to give us a passion and a hunger and a thirst for God. Where the Holy Spirit goes, he makes it holy. That's why we call him the Holy Spirit. We call him the Holy Spirit because the work of the Spirit is to make those which he indwells holy. And so God says, what I'm going to do is I'm going to take that rock out of your chest. I'm going to put a heart of flesh, and I'm going to put my spirit within you. I'm going to put a new spirit within you. So when he says he's going to cause us to be faithful, he's going to cause us to be obedient. Does that mean he's going to like drag us kicking and screaming, gun to our head, make sure that we do what he says? No, that doesn't bring glory to God. That's not at all what he's talking about. When he talks about heart and spirit here, he's talking about the center of the person, which is the will, the, the place in which the person makes a decision. Here's what he's saying is going to happen. I'm going to take that hardened will of yours. I'm going to, to take those hardened faculties of yours, those that are constantly walling off to me, and I'm going to replace those with my spirit. I'm going to, in other words, I'm going to change your desires. I'm going to make you right with me. I'm going to make you live a life that is right and holy by changing your desire into making you desire to live right and holy. So that, that is what you want to do. That is spirit-wrought freedom. See, it is not freedom to read your Bible because you feel guilty if you don't. It is not freedom to live a life of sexual fidelity because you feel some kind of constraint. It is not freedom to, to give to your church or give generously because if you don't, you know, like, you're going to feel bad about it. That's not freedom. Freedom is when you read your Bible out of delight. 
Freedom is when you give because your heart is overflowing with, with gratitude and grace and mercy and cheerfulness. Freedom is when you live a life of sexual fidelity because you want to bring, you want joy. And so you, you seek that as God-given opportunity for joy. That's freedom. And that's what the Spirit does in us. He makes us other than we are. He changes our desires so that what God wants for us is what we want for us. And he makes those things coalesce into one so that now we are free to bring God glory by being free and living a holy life. See, Jesus did not come merely so that you could, so that you could merely be forgiven. Do you realize that? I think that's the distortion of the gospel in the modern church. That Jesus came just so that I can be saved and go about my life. Jesus came so that I could be baptized. Jesus came so that I could, you know, attend a church or have my name associated with a church or come to a church ever so often. Jesus came so that I could fill out a card. But those are, those are completely incomplete answers about why Christ came. Jesus didn't come so that you could merely be forgiven. Jesus came so that you could be holy. So that you could be holy. So that your desires could change. So that you can hunger and thirst and have an appetite for that which is not natural to you, but other, otherly supernatural to you. Jesus came not merely so that you could be baptized, but so that you could be made new. Not just to wash you clean, but to completely transform you from the inside out. In your life, is there any appetite for holiness? In your life, is there any hunger and thirst for righteousness? In your life, is there any spirit-given desire to want to be right with God and close to God and in the presence of God? In your life, is there a spirit-given desire to prioritize your life in the way that God would call you to prioritize your life? And if you look and you don't see it, you have every reason to wonder whether or not you know Christ at all. You have every reason to wonder whether or not you can enjoy the promise the, the promises achieved through Christ's advent at all. You have every reason to wonder if your life is not characterized by any form of holiness as to whether or not the Holy Spirit indwells you at all. You see, our vision here is to make disciples that are maturing and multiplying to the ends of the earth. But the question comes, how do we know what maturing is? What does maturity look like? How do we define maturity? And maturity is defined by holiness. Are we growing in holiness? Are we growing in passion? Are we growing in our devotion to Christ? Are we growing in the image of Christ? Are we living lives that are not merely justified, but at the same time sanctified? Are we growing in the holiness of Christ so that His name might be vindicated among the nations? Let us pray together. Heavenly Father, forgive us for how often our lives are defined by a lack of holiness. Forgive us for how often in our lives we grieve the Spirit. And that the passion which, which, with which we should live and have and love you, God, is somehow quenched or lesser than it should be. We repent of that, God. We ask that through your spirit, you would change us. Father, I pray for those in here today that do not yet have you. 
do not yet have your spirit, do not have a, a passion for you or a desire for you. Lord, would you put your hand over them? Would you move in them with your spirit in this moment and convict them of their sins and awaken their hearts? And God, in this day, God, would you restore them and regenerate them and make them new? Would you wash them of your sin? Father, I pray for the Christian that's living in guilt and bondage, that God, on this day, they would turn and they would repent, and that, Lord, they would live their lives in spirit-wrought freedom. Oh, God, move among your people. Move among your people. Let us worship you as the God of promises and promises kept. We ask these things now in Jesus' name.